he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Gotta get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of In the Details. My name is Colin Drucker. Your name is... Oh, I forgot what I was going to call you. Oh, well, we'll skip it. And uh, this is a celebration of nuance, where each week I queen out on all the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great. Oh, this is the part where I say my name and I give you a name. Oh, well. Um, it, it's appropriate for things to not go um, according to plan because this episode is very much a not according to plan kind of episode. And I don't mean that as some kind of like, oh, great, an excuse. What are you, sick again? Uh, it's not so much that. It's actually been kind of a not going according to plan sort of night. Uh, we were supposed to record a whole bunch of content for All Right Mary tonight and then kind of like mysterious technical difficulties and we just kind of had to like postpone it and I then I had like something like something else broke like it was just kind of this feeling even today like I worked from home today and I didn't really do anything so if anyone from work is listening now you know why I didn't respond to your email but I don't think anyone from work is listening but it has just kind of felt like a day where Things were not working. Things were not going according to the easy route. And I I could go into a whole diatribe of reasons why I think this might be happening. And I, I, it's not synthesized yet, so it's kind of just a lot of hypothesizing about the evidence in, of, of what's in my, la my life the past few weeks. But I don't. this isn't like a podcast where I talk about the evidence in my life the past few weeks and try to understand why things are breaking right now. Maybe it could be. Maybe those are details and nuances we could talk about, but I try to stay on on uh, on topic as much as possible. Um, but the, the theory that I have is that I think that I am in, in all sorts of ways welcoming in new dynamics into my life and new people and new approaches and new points of view like I just it's this feeling of like I don't know I I guess it's not really spring cleaning right because it's fall so it's like a fall clearing I don't know in any event point being I'm trying to look at all of this on the positive side because I think when you want to welcome a bunch of like new stuff into your life you got to make room first you got to clear stuff out of the closet you got to clear away the stuff that's in the way and so the stuff that's broken uh, has to get out of the way. And I, that's not to say that All Right Mary is broken. I feel like that's what it sounds like I'm implying. I am looking at this as like, okay, cool. We didn't record All Right Mary tonight. Then I'll come home and I'll record some in the details. And it's great that I'm doing it tonight and I'm not doing this episode when I thought I was going to do it, which was before Halloween, because it's taken me, you know, three and a half minutes to tell you that this is, of course, the episode where I planned on and will be talking about uh, Halloween, particularly the new Halloween movie that just came out, and Jamie Lee Curtis and her involvement with it. And originally, I thought I was going to do kind of a whole episode about her and about her involvement with the horror franchise. It's really kind of where her film career started with Halloween and then Prom Night and The Fog and Terror Train and Road Games and Halloween 2. You know, um, I don't think there were, were there any others at that time? 
I think I don't think so. I don't remember. Um, but in any event, uh, yeah, and I was just going to kind of dig into all of that. And the new Halloween movie was going to be kind of the capper, and that was going to, you know, all of that was going to lead to us talking about this new movie that I guess I just kind of assumed I was going to love because I loved the idea, of course, of bringing Laurie Strode back. I love the idea of disregarding all of those really weird sequels. I never really had a problem with the with Halloween 2, the original Halloween 2, because there's a there's now a number of Halloween 2s that exist. There's the Rob Zombie ones, which I haven't even watched those. I think they'd be interesting, but I think they're supposed to be very violent. So I'm like, well, I kind of know what happened. So why do I need to see like a more violent version of the story? And I think there's a lot of flashbacks or Michael's backstory in the Rob Zombie versions and to be honest, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but when a movie or a book or anything or a play starts to go into a flashback, I go to this place of like, oh, come on. I was just getting into the story, and now i got to get into this new story, and it's set in some other time period that I'm not interested in. And it's just like an interruption. It's hard to kind of get involved again. So I just don't feel like – like for me, Halloween – What's most interesting about it is Lori and is Lori's confrontation with Michael is kind of everything that happens towards the end of the movie. So all of this other time spent getting to know why Michael went crazy. I don't care. That's kind of what I like about this movie. I talked about that with Texas Chainsaw Massacre last episode is that I like when I don't really know why all of this is happening or I like when I only have pieces of the puzzle and then I have to fill in the gaps because the gaps that I fill in are going to be at least more interesting to me because I chose them, but could potentially be scarier than whatever these movies come up with. So, that I mean, me, any of us, right? Like, whatever we imagine it could be is uh, potentially even more insane and, and terrifying than the movie could actually even portray, you know? So I, uh, all that is, and all that is actually relevant talking about the new Halloween movie because I have to say, like, my expectation going in was that this was going to be a story about Laurie. Oh, look, that rhymed. Uh, this was going to be a story about Laurie Strode. This was going to be similar to Halloween H2O. This was really going to be focusing on where she is now in her life and how she handles Michael Myers coming back into her life. And, of course getting her revenge and kind of completing what was started, you know, in 1978. And I've heard other reviewers say this as well, but I can't believe that I'm being put in a position where I am, uh, I, I was just listening to what is becoming my absolutely top new favorite podcast, um, at least in terms of horror movies, Gay Lords of Darkness, which we'll talk about in a second. But their review certainly informed me and one of the co-hosts, Anthony, had said this exact statement of, I can't believe I'm being put in this position of being an H2O apologist. But that's absolutely true. That's exactly how I feel, is that watching this new Halloween movie, I... I'm sorry, I'm stopping, because Marco is standing on my coffee table just, like, furiously wiping his paw against a piece of junk mail. I don't know what that's about. This is this is a kooky, kooky night. This is... I'm recording this on November 1st, um, and I don't know if this is – it. maybe – I don't know. I have no idea. Is it a full moon? I haven't looked. I haven't – I have no idea why it's been such a weird day, but maybe it's a Halloween hangover. 
in any event, um, what was I saying? So yeah, I I find that I am looking back fondly on Halloween H2O, and in particular, it's because the portrayal of Laurie Strode felt more realistic. The idea of Laurie Strode 20 years later and where she was and the life that she had, it made more sense to me. You know, she had thrived enough to have, she was a teacher at a private school and she had changed her identity and um, she had a son. And obviously she also had a drinking problem. And But we also saw her dating and having a love life and being sexual. And these were things they talked about on Gaylords of Darkness as well. You know, I, I love referring to that like it's the Wall Street Journal. But to me it is. It's the only news fit to print when it comes to horror movies. Um, this is the I, – actually, oh, I, I should back up and clarify about this podcast. So I talked about – uh, Final Girl, the blog Final Girl, weeks ago, I think when I first started doing all these spooky movies for In the Details, and the writer for that, Stacey Ponder, and, and I was saying how I was a big fan of hers, and I wondered what she was up to, and I used to love Final Girl, and I think I said I used to read it in high school, but I had my timelines all wrong. I think it was in college, because it was around like 2006, I think, I found it. And I was, you know, I was like, oh, I wonder what she's doing these days. And then I went on to Final Girl and I saw that she had this podcast that, that she and this guy Anthony had started. Um, he runs this thing, Queer Horror, which is, uh, I think they do like screenings in Portland of different like horror movies. And it's all, you know, obviously queer through a queer eye, a queer lens. Uh, I think that's what it is. Uh, I should do my research before I talk about someone and promote them. And so anyway, they just started this podcast, I think. Like, the week I had, like, looked it up, it was kismet, as they say. I don't know who says that. But anyway, it is so funny. It is so much of, at least the things that I've seen that they talk about, it is, like, my my point of view and my opinions, I'm to a T. I'm just constantly waving a hanky, if I could marry out. I'm waving a hanky at, at what they're doing. And they just did an episode on Halloween and the reason to kind of bring us to to land this plane the reason why I'm glad I didn't record this episode sooner and get it out for you on Halloween is uh, because listening to their discussion on Halloween completely I guess it's fair to say kind of changed my mind significantly but I think what it really did is it it peeled away all of the confirmation bias that I was that I was seeing Halloween with. To me, what I wanted to confirm was that this really was a movie about trauma, and this really was a movie about the effects of what happens in in a way, like what happens to a final girl, you know. And I thought, oh, we really haven't seen that in this context. We've obviously seen what trauma and, and PTSD looks like in different scenarios. But I think the horror genre where that's so relevant and where that is the rest of the story and that the where that, so where so many of these movies end is where another story begins. And it's not that the killer is still alive. It's what happens when the final girl has to go home, you know, and has to go back to her life. And what does it do to you? And I went into Halloween thinking that's what this movie was really going to show us. And part of that was because I had been watching interviews that Jamie Lee Curtis was doing promoting the movie. And I will say, like, these interviews, 
I think are still great. There's there's one in particular, and I'll play a little clip here that I love because it's the exact way I want to hear someone talking about the horror genre right now, and it's talking about topics that are so relevant. We find Laurie Strode in isolation. Um, trauma isolates people. Trauma that is untreated, uncared for, and has wreaked the havoc that trauma will wreak on a human being uh, without treatment, without support. She has lost her family, she has lost all friends, any real contact with anybody, and she lives in a paranoid state. Halloween is about a, a woman in her 50s who is being confronted with something traumatic that happened to her when she was a teenager. And she's dealing with the feelings that come up when that traumatizing figure comes back into her consciousness, comes back into her presence. We saw, we saw it all play out with Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh and the allegations of sexual assault. And I felt like there was no way of knowing that this could happen and that Halloween would be coming out like mere weeks after all of that. But it was perfect timing to tell a story of of that happening, but in this setting and to see the similarities, I guess. And I think also, I mean, this is certainly a personal opinion and a, a, a personal preference, but to see victory, you know, to see that woman overcome that seemingly unstoppable toxic male energy because that's what Michael Myers is. He's just this boogeyman. And I think that anonymity is so relevant, that that unstoppable, unfeeling force and the way that it just trudges on without remorse. And I think, oh, that rhymed too. I've been rhyming a bit tonight. And I just thought, wow, how cool to see that story talked about in a quote-unquote slasher film. I didn't want to accept how disappointed I was that Halloween kind of addressed that as a subplot. It seemed to me that they, there was so much that they didn't know how to talk about when it came to Lori. They talked about on Gaylords of Darkness is that it seemed like the writers of this movie didn't know how to write this woman. They didn't know how to write any of these women. And I think that's very true. I I had not accepted that. And then once I heard that, I was like, oh, yes, that's why the original Halloween worked. That's why those relationships and those female characters worked. And, and why we're still so drawn to that movie is because the human elements, the things that, that make us feel something, that make make us feel sad when Annie gets killed and, and we don't just see her as fodder before the final you know confrontation is because Deborah Hill was involved and because she helped write that that content and that dialogue and none of that was present in this movie and I hadn't really recognized until obviously listening to the this episode with you know Stacy and Anthony you know just talking about them first name basis like we're best friends just gonna manifest that um but I hadn't really thought about that until they talked about it, that this new Halloween was not about Lori. It was about Michael Myers. And in some ways, we are, instead of being kind of allied with Lori and following her story and really rooting for her, we're really put in a position to root for Michael. You know, is it, there's, there's so many moments that are just 
him being put in crowd-pleasing situations. You know, there's these random kills that he has. You know, there's when he when he gets the mask and he gets back in the neighborhood and he gets the the knife from the one house and he kills some woman with a hammer and there's really no reason to and then he goes next door and kills some woman and I don't even know who she is. I don't even was she a character? Like what I hadn't remembered was that in the first movie that Michael didn't kill so indiscriminately that he only killed out of necessity. Like I think in Halloween too, that, that, that sequence was sort of an homage of him going into the house and getting the knife because he does that towards the beginning of Halloween too, but he doesn't kill the woman in the house. He just goes in there to get the knife. And any of the times that he killed someone, it was because it, he needed to in order to kind of accomplish what he needed to do. I mean, he doesn't even kill Marion, uh, the nurse in the first movie who, you know, who, when he escapes, like she doesn't like that character in this version would of course be killed because it's an opportunity to show a kill. And I definitely feel like this movie was like, okay, well we, we need to have a body count because we're not going to kill any of the three main women. So we need to kill everybody else. And that means that we are going to kill these podcasters off, of course. I don't take it personally. And then there's that scene where they kill the, there's the father and the son. And we'll talk about that conversation they're having about the dance class in a second. But then they both get killed. I mean, like, it should be noted that, yeah, we have to see a scene of this little queer boy, this little gay kid. Like, because, like, so anyway, let's just back up in case you don't know. So, it's, these are characters that are just kind of introduced just as, you know, they're just fodder. But it's a father and a son in a pickup truck, and the father is a real kind of like hunter country guy, and his son is a bit a, slightly effeminate, you know, and is saying to his father that he doesn't really like to go hunting, that he really prefers dance, and that's what he wants to focus on. And it's seeing it in this movie, at first I was like, oh, that's cool. We're seeing a different narrative. But I guess I just can't help but feel like there was some mockery there. Like the more that I realized that this movie wasn't made to tell like the emotional story and knowing that when I see the scene of like the gay kid then like getting killed, I don't feel comfortable about anybody watching or making that content. You know what I mean? I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think, and I can be wrong about this, right? But it makes me feel like there's a lot of people seeing this movie who see that and are like, oh, good, the little fag's dead, you know? And I just I just didn't like that. I, I think if the kid wasn't killed, I don't think he had to be. They didn't kill the little kid that Vicky was babysitting, right? So it wasn't entirely necessary. And it was strange to me that we didn't see the father get killed. And there are other characters where we aren't shown, I think, you know, like Karen's husband, whatever his name was, the older, the, the much older man who has the line, oh, I got cheese on my penis. Is that what he says? That to me, then I was like, okay, this is like, this is like frat boy humor. This is just like, oh, look, I said penis. I'm just not impressed. I'm just like, yeah, get over it. You're like 56 years old. You've had a penis all these years. No one's impressed. No one. I'm glad you found it. And so... Anyway, I, I, so that was a little weird to me that there were all these sort of unnecessary kills like the father and the son and the, the other women. And 
that I don't know. Then if we weren't really following Lori's story, uh, we were following Allison, her granddaughter, and we followed her for a while in this movie. She really was being set up to be the sort of nouveau Lori. You know, she she felt like she was going to be our new final girl. That she was. She, we were going to see her at the same age her grandmother was in the first movie going through a similar experience. And I guess there's moments of that. But ultimately, Allison doesn't contribute anything significant to this plot. I, 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 stabbing Michael a few times as they trap him in the panic room feels like, oh, we forgot. We need, to like, we need to make sure all three women are involved in taking down Michael. And... I love the idea of that. See, now that's the thing is I love I love the possibilities of this movie. I love what I thought it was going to be. I love that that idea of generational trauma and how this affected Karen and then how that got passed down to Allison. I thought all of that was just like new storytelling in the horror genre and worth telling and was the most interesting. But all of that felt, I mean, it did feel like they just had to kind of shoehorn that in because we had to follow these podcasters. And then we had to have this whole thing with the doctor and that whole dumb twist. I mean, come on. I, I, I seriously feel like there was some fanboying over the possibility of seeing the doctor stand up and be wearing Michael Myers' mask. And I feel like that was the moment they saw in their heads. There he was in the headlights there was the shock moment and Allison stuck in the back of the police car. And then it was like, okay, let's just work backwards. How do we make this moment happen? Because, I mean, those those two things, the podcasters and the doctor, they weren't, they were devices. The podcasters were involved just so Michael could get his mask back. And then the doctor was involved because that was the only way that they were going to get Michael to Lori. Because I hadn't appreciated this, but like Michael... Michael wasn't seeking to finish the job on Laurie Strode. She was the one, like, and I know I'm repeating. I mean, if 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 you and you should listen to the Gaylords of Darkness episode, so I know I'm repeating some of their opinions. But I just I couldn't agree more. Like that, Laurie spent her entire life in preparation for this, and Michael had not. And it wasn't Michael who had escaped. It was likely the doctor who had facilitated all of this because of this whole like I want to know what he feels thing or whatever the hell that was and so the problem with that is that Lori was preparing for something that was never going to happen and then when it did happen by a series of kind of convoluted events it was like you spent 40 years preparing for this and you didn't know to not lean against a door with glass panes on it? Are you serious? Like, what did you think he was going to do? Of course he's going to reach both hands through the glass and grab your head and almost kill you. Like, how did, how did that happen? How did, you, how did you prepare all these years? How did you create this booby-trapped house? And yet when it came to the front door, it was no more secure than somebody's beach house. You know what I mean? Like, that was... I thought that was really strange. And I think much like the original Halloween, what excited me ultimately most in this movie or when I really kind of was the most engaged was the final confrontation. 
And it was like, uh, of course, it was like what we are all waiting for, right? Like that's what we all were showing up for in the audience, but also in the world of Halloween, that this was the definitive sequel and this was the final, like the conclusion of this story. And so I thought, well, fuck, this isn't 20 years later. This is 40 years later. So it better be good. Like it better be a real showdown. And so for all of that possibility, for all of that buildup, for all of that potential energy, to spend so much time, I mean, what was the whole Vicky plot subplot about? Why did we even have to go there? Other than it being kind of an Annie throwback and to give the little kids some sassy dialogue, which was funny, but I find that to be like so I don't know just kind of cheap like I just think it's such a cheap laugh it's like a jump scare it's like okay you got the kid to say like funny sassy things but like I, I'm fully removed from the suspension of disbelief you've you've created for me the downside is that all of the time we spent with that subplot took away from time we could have spent with Lori who disappears for chunks of the movie it seems but the upside of those scenes is that vicky is like one of the most likable characters in the movie and her relationship with that kid is actually kind of sweet and there's that cute moment where she says like you know you actually are my favorite and when that was happening i thought oh man this this has so much heart to it this has I'm I'm connected to this. I'm very connected to this character. I really like her. I love making this character who is often kind of like one note horny babysitter trope and in the kind of old school slasher rules that's you know oh she has a sexuality we need to punish her with a butcher knife you know. I like that this movie was was not really playing by those rules except the fact that Vicky did ultimately get killed. I will say that one thing I did not understand about Vicky, and this isn't really anything against her or the actress, it's really the writing, is that when Vicky's boyfriend shows up, and I think he gets the Halloween, like the date tattooed on his arm, and then I think Vicky says to him, oh, you are so getting dry fucked tonight. Now, I do not know, I don't even feel like urban dictionarying what dry fucking is, but who... Who enjoys that? I At least from my gay point of view, there's like nothing appealing about the, that, that concept, whatever that's implying. But I, I really think universally, you know, no one is like, ooh, let me get it really dry for you. I really wish somebody questioned it. Maybe I just don't know something the kids are into these days. Maybe like the added challenge of it being really dry is like the the kink i don't know this is i i am not here to kink shame anyone but i'm also not here to define it so i i just think that that all could have been cut because it didn't go anywhere i think the podcasters could have totally been cut i think there's so many other ways that michael could have gotten the mask i, I don't know what they could have been but i think creating a whole subplot all for that one thing was I guess I did he like did he find like files? No, I, I was trying to think that was like oh did he find information about Lori in their car? And I don't think that was even the case. Like it was just the mask. And then because I think in Halloween H two O he steals a car from some woman at a, at a rest stop. Like there's a rest stop scene, but he and it's this like woman and her kid, but he doesn't kill them because he just needs their car. 
But here, it's like, oh, no, 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 I'm going to kill you, and it's going to be, like, really brutal and uncomfortable, you know? I just, I, I felt like the kills in this movie were really indulgent, and there were some that were very fan-serving, like the one of the guy pinned against the wall with the knife. And it's true. You see those scenes, and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that in the first movie, and then you're not really watching this movie anymore. You're thinking about how similar that is to the first movie. That's a low-hanging fruit. Like, you're going to get people's uh, approval in the moment, but ultimately it takes away from from the quality of the final product. I think the character that got glossed over the most that ended up being or having the most potential to be interesting was Karen, was Judy Greer's character. First of all, Judy Greer, I mean, great actress, just like... She makes role. She can make so many not so good roles really interesting just by her interpretation of it. This role is so thin and so ineffectual until the final like thirty seconds of that confrontation. Like it, it's kind of sad that they had so much potential in Laurie Strode's daughter, who wasn't just some woman. I mean, she had a whole story. She had a whole history. But instead of really learning about it, we got some, like, hurried flashbacks and a couple of, like, expository pieces of dialogue. But we didn't really get to understand, you know, for example, like, what it was like being taken away from her mother, how they reconnected, why they're still in each other's lives in any way. Like, the fact that they don't live that far away from each other. You know, I mean, I do think that's kind of strange that... Lori never, like, she didn't move very far. You know what I mean? And maybe that's because of this whole idea that she's just been waiting for him to get released so she could kill him or waiting for him to get free so she could kill him. But those are things when, and I know I said before, sometimes I like the mystery. I don't want the backstory. But this is the kind of backstory I absolutely want. This is the kind of backstory that makes a movie more interesting because I think if we really understood the conflicts between Lori and Karen and Allison and we really understood their dynamics then the climax in the house with the three of them against Michael would have been so much more interesting I think there's a lot of ways that that climax could have been more interesting I think that they that one moment of of Judy Greer of Karen uh you know capitalizing on the skills that Lori taught her as a kid of pretending that she couldn't do it of you know starting to break down because that fear would attract Michael I thought that was that was cool. I don't always love, you know, having a little sort of gotcha line before, you know, before a kill. And she does say, like, gotcha, and then shoots him. I don't always love that. But it it wasn't as offensive as then Lori appearing out of the darkness like Mr. Miyagi, you know, proudly watching what, you know, the, the fruits of her labor. And then saying, you know, happy Halloween, Michael. It, it, I don't need that. I don't need... Why do we need to do that? Why do movies do that? It doesn't work, especially if it's just some it's just some person. It's not like they're a superhero or a villain or it's not Asta La Vista, baby. It's not the Terminator. It's Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode doesn't have a tagline. Come on. Like, going back to Halloween H2O, what I love most about that movie is the ending. I really think that besides that scene where where Laurie sneaks in an extra glass of wine, I thought that scene I do think that scene's great. And I do think you compare that to the the 
Lori alcoholic nods in Halloween 2018, there's that one kind of hurried, hyper-edited scene of her in the car watching Michael's bus leaving the asylum. And I love that thing where she kind of like uh, messily drinks like a little, you know, airplane bottle of booze and then screams. Like, I loved all that. And I was like, this, this is your story. This is so much more of a story than the podcasters. Why am I not seeing more of this? Why do I have to see what essentially adds up to like a Nine Inch Nails video to tell me what, what Lori's going through on the day that Michael's getting released? Why, why do I have to be rushed through that? Why can't we take our time with that? Is it, is it because, I know, is it because nobody's going to show up to a movie about a woman in her 50s? Is that what this is? Or a horror movie, I should say. Because, you know, there's like those Nancy Myers movies. I feel like people show up for those. But is it just that? Like, I, I don't know. I just, that's so stupid. It's like, yeah, well, that's what this movie is. I do think that Halloween H2O was more or less about Laurie, way more than this one was. I mean, we had all the, the scenes with Josh Hartnett and Michelle Williams, and they were fine. I don't remember that being particularly annoying. But I, I think we also really got to see what Lori was like as a mom. And we got to see elements of what I really wanted to see play out in this version was the final girl turned final woman. And the idea of a final woman is something I'm very interested in. And I'd like to find more examples of. I know there's probably some that exist, but I'd love to kind of highlight those i'd love to get your suggestions and recommendations because a final like a final woman over a final girl like what i'm trying to say is that a, a final woman brings wisdom and a final woman brings experience and i think what's exciting about a final girl in a horror movie is figuring out how she's going to get out of a situation and how she's going to muster up the strength and seeing that transformation and i think there's so much more for a, a woman in her 40s or her 50s or 60s, I don't care, you know, pulling from, there's so much more for her to pull from. There's so much more experience. There's so much more emotional intelligence that can go into her decisions and her reactions. We do see a little of it in this version when Lori says to Karen when they're down in the panic room together and she's like, I'm so sorry. I never should have raised you like this. Like we see this kind of like last minute regret and it's really, really interesting. That moment was so cool. And I don't know if that made sense in that moment for her to suddenly reject it because I felt like, Lori, this is the moment. This is everything you've been preparing for. Now it's happening. I, I think it's cool in a way for her to be like, now it's finally happening and I regret everything. But it was a little out of place. I don't know. It, I don't think they earned that moment, I guess. But on its own, it's a cool idea. And so from what I remember in Halloween H2O, I think we get a little bit more emotional intelligence around who Lori is and how she handles that final confrontation with Michael. And in particular, I mean, let's just go right to the end of Halloween H2O. Spoilers abound. And there's that final scene where she, you know, hijacks the coroner's van with Michael's body in it. And then, you know, rolls it off. The, he attacks her and rolls it off the cliff. And anyway, he ends up getting trapped between the, the van and a tree trunk. And he's pinned between it and facing her. There's nothing he can do. You know, his hands are like outstretched. You know, he's trying to grab her. And it's this moment of realizing that like there's nothing he can do but face her. 
and we don't get any like you know dumb tagline from Lori. I don't remember her saying "Happy Halloween, Michael" or anything like that. What I do remember is is there's this moment of like, oh, um, brother and sister of connection of him reaching out to her and her having an emotional response and her feeling that conflict of because in that version of the story he is her brother and her having that conflict of like, here you are, my brother, and and we're we're together again. And then she just swings a fucking axe and chops his head off. And it is so satisfying. Like the way that she swings it. There's no Happy Halloween, Michael. There's none of that shit. There's no Asa La Vista, baby. She just, she just fucking goes for it. And what it feels like in the movie is, nope, this is what needs to happen. And I have no doubts about it. And it is a little bit of a fake out, similar to the finale of this Halloween but it's so much more satisfying and the head rolls away and then she just kind of she's like all right job's done and she is truly the final woman she has all of that emotion all of that history all of that all of that um understanding of herself that she can pull from and create moments of real gravitas you know and I think seeing her as a mom and seeing her defend her kid I think that's really exciting and we saw more of that in H2O than in H4O. I guess that's what Gaylords of Darkness, they were calling it H4O. But we see versions of her wanting to protect Karen and, and coming into her house and saying, you have no security system and all of that. And when she shows up at the dinner unannounced and then she starts drinking the wine off the table and she starts crying, you know, it, none of it feels real like none all of it feels like oh what if she did this oh what if she did that and so I kind of go back to that idea that Stacy and Anthony talked about of like there were there was no woman to write this character there's no there was no one who understood how to write a woman in her 50s and uh, there are men I'm sure there are men who can who can write that character who can connect with that story you know I think about whenever I think about like a man who's really good at understanding or telling women's stories i think of rodrigo garcia he uh in particular there's these two movies that are early in his career one is called 10 tiny love stories and the other one is called nine lives 10 tiny love stories is like a series of of monologues it's just a, a woman sitting in front of the camera in a different setting telling a story and some of them are better than others um there's one the the movie is is totally worth seeing. It's it's just the the mere fact that it exists that's worth seeing. But there's one story uh, told by Lisa Gay Hamilton. By it's not the actual actress. They're playing characters, but the one she does is particularly strong. And then Nine Lives is nine different uh, ten minute single take scenes that are you know they're not they're not just camera fixed on two people. Like it is incredible what they do in a single take but um and that's of course a, a different woman's story in each 10 minute tale each 10 minute tale that's a that's a way to describe it and then they're all kind of interconnected in a way and lisa gay hamilton is also in that and is incredible i'm gonna do a whole episode on this movie i don't i'm not i'm not familiar with her outside of these movies I, she was on a tv show i can't remember which one but she is fucking phenomenal She's just like just an incredible actress, um, and so anyway, 
I'm tangenting, but what I'm trying to say is that Rodrigo Garcia wrote those movies as well as directing them, and it it feels like movies written by a woman. It feels like a like a real digging in of a woman's emotional experience. There's oh, there's another one he did called Things You Can Tell Just by Looking at Her. Like they just have such a feminine energy, but it just amazes me that it's a, a man who's written and directed it. And from what I've heard, I mean, I feel like there've been lots of women who've kind of endorsed him as like, oh yeah, he gets it. And that being said, I mean, that's great. It's great to see a man who's uh, not white uh, writing and directing and telling stories. But I, at this at this stage of the game, I'd like to actually see a woman writing and directing. I mean, when I think of women directors, like I think of another movie that I really want to talk about is The Invitation, which is directed by Karen Kuzmana. And uh, Kuzmana Kusama, am I saying her name right? I should look it up. I really should look these things up because there's something about say, like saying the wrong thing on a podcast and then it just sits there and, and you just are wrong, you know, forever. It's just this permanent mistake that you made. I'm vamping a little because I'm looking up the invitation. And uh, let's see. It is Karen Kusama. So I'm so glad I looked that up. It's written by two men, but uh, and so I'd be happy to see it written by a woman as well. But that movie to me feels like it benefits from a woman directing it. Like I can I can't really describe it. Maybe I'll figure out how to describe it when I do that episode. But I just sense the difference, you know? I I sense a different treatment of the characters. I sense a different attention to the detail of emotional nuance that that is sometimes really hard to find, especially in horror movies in general. But I think movies like this that that are kind of coming from a fan perspective and are coming from a perspective of like, ooh, we're gonna like, we're gonna like raise the stakes, you know, and like, like how do horror movies raise the stakes? And that's by showing like more brutal kills and complicating the plot and throwing in crazy twists and catchphrases and little like lines that people say before they maybe kill the killer. And of course, that brings us to the end of Halloween, the end of the movie. Obviously, there's we don't really see Michael die. Lord, they trap him in the in the panic room. This final confrontation was way too short. And it was just like in the panic room, back in the kitchen, down in the panic room. Like, and I again I feel like I'm repeating everything I heard on Gaylords of Darkness. Take a drink every time I've said Gaylords of Darkness. The the original Halloween, there is there's the first confrontation in um the house across the street and then there's outside and then there's Lori trying to get into that into the house where she's babysitting and that whole thing with her trying to get in the door and get the keys oh my god and they were Stacy and Anthony they, I forgot about this but it's so true there's that part where Lori's trying to find the keys in her pocket and she's going the keys the keys the keys and I guess they do that in um in this version, but I didn't notice it. I don't know. I guess Allison does it at one point. So, you know, and then it goes into that house and then it's like, there's the confrontation in the living room and then upstairs in the bedroom and there's the whole closet scene, right? The original movie, the, the closet scene is brilliant because it's, it's showing that Lori is still the 17-year-old babysitter. She's not Wonder Woman. And she is doing like the most vulnerable of things of hiding in a bedroom closet. It's like something a child would do. It's also interesting because that's like where the boogeyman hides, right? And then that's where she's hiding. And 
I think they tried to play with this a little bit in um, the new version. They, you know, we see the closet at one point, or we see a, a closet that's similar, but it's all, I think she just finds her son-in-law's body in there. And it's like, yeah, well, he got cheese on his penis. I don't miss him. So anyway, but in the original movie, so she's hiding in the closet. And then, of course, he starts breaking in. And what I love about that moment is she doesn't know what the fuck she's going to do. And then we see her we see her realize that she can use one of the hangers as a weapon. And we just see that moment of her having that the, the potential energy building up to a kinetic response. And the kinetic response being that she dis, dis, dissembles a, is it disassembles or dissembles? I'll never know. Um, she takes apart, <laughs> she takes apart a hanger and crafts into a weapon. Now, doesn't she stab him in the eye? There's really no reference to an injured eye. That would have been a really smart little nuance. But anyway, I love that moment. I love seeing her have to kind of figure that out. But in the new movie, we we the confrontation is really, there's that whole scene at the front door where he almost kills her. And it's just like, you boob. 40 years of preparation and he could have had you done in 45 seconds, you know? Uh, you're like a hot pocket in an air fryer, you know? That happens. And then basically there's it, – it's just all about the panic room. It's all about – that. that's where it all gets localized. And what's worse about that is that it involves guns. They've brought a gun to a knife fight. And it just makes all of this – I think guns in horror movies – I mean enough with the guns, you know? Enough with the fucking guns anyway in general. Enough with the fucking guns. But guns in horror movies, I think, make things in general less interesting because, yes, people are more vulnerable. They could be shot at a further distance. But I think it eliminates the real visceral thrill of a chase scene or a confrontation or a fight or a battle to the death. You know, it it really takes away, I think, that primal animal thing that, that I think we watch horror movies for, what it taps into, I think— it's lost when you've when you've used a gun to kind of remove us from that and facilitate that to be a lot less engaged. And so I I feel like, you know, she's got the rifle. Like it just this all gets resolved so easily. They shoot him a couple of times, they stab him a couple of times, he falls down the stairs, they trap him in there. There's some dumb line where I think Karen says like, this isn't a cage, it's a trap. It's like, uh, yeah, we know. That part where those little metal bars slid out and created a trap, we figured out this was a trap. We know. And so that happens, and then, then you know, they systematically set the house on fire. But nobody, I mean, you can't stick around to make sure he dies. But before you set your whole house on fire, and while you've got him immobilized in the basement, since you've been waiting 40 years to kill this guy, don't you want to make sure... Don't you want to just shoot him a few more times and chop off his head? Like, don't you kind of just want to make sure that after 40 years and spend putting your whole life into this moment, this is the moment. This is it. This is what everything has been built up for. This is what you have jerry-rigged your whole adult life to happen. This exact moment where he's trapped in your panic room so you can set the house on fire and kill him. It's all happened. And and this is where you're going to not get one more shot in there just in case? Like, I just don't get it. So they get out of the house. They flag down some pickup truck. They're driving away. 
we don't really ever see the last of Michael. All we see is Allison holding the knife. And so what are we supposed to think there? Oh, has the curse been passed on to her? Oh, good God. Like, that is not interesting to me. When Halloween goes in that direction where it's some kind of supernatural thing, where this can get passed on, all of that, I think, takes away from what's really scary about the Halloween movies. And that's this idea that he's just this faceless killer who saw these girls and decided to kill them. And that was it. And, like, that's way more terrifying, even in the idea that, like, she's his long-lost sister. That's an interesting idea. It's a direction to go in. And I think that Halloween 2, it's not a perfect movie, but it has its moments. But I think Halloween H2O certainly capitalized on that and used it pretty well. And I don't think they necessarily had to continue it in this version, but... You know, other, but I don't know. I guess it takes away the connection, right? Like she's, she wasn't even the one who like defeated him. She just got away. But there's plenty of people he didn't kill. It was Loomis who who shot him. It was Loomis who like got in the way, and now Loomis is dead. So, unless Michael really just needs to kill that one babysitter, I like what's what's driving him to do that? Nothing, nothing drives him to do that in this movie. It's just Laurie's delusion. And so in some ways, I, I'm thinking of this as I'm saying it, isn't the story kind of that Laurie is just this crazy woman? I mean, doesn't she even say at one point that she's a basket case? Like, isn't that really what this is suggesting, is that she's just this crazy country prepper who has uh, really no appeal whatsoever, you know? There's really nothing to like about Lori. And so I just, like, I, we ultimately come out of this movie with kind of less of an opinion of her. You know, she, I keep harping on this, but, like, you, you say this whole thing of she spent all this time preparing for this, and she could barely finish the job herself, you know? Like, she didn't prepare to have backup. We saw the Lori from two, 20 years before. She, yeah, she ran away and she could escape, but at some point she had to fight back and she figured out how to fight back in that moment. And then at the end, she, I think that was the real turnaround, was instead of being saved by the doctor and then just crying in the corner and saying, was it the boogeyman? She was like, no, I'm going to finish this because last time I didn't finish it and it wasn't over. And so this time I need to just make sure it's done and I'm going to do it. And, you know, I'm not trying to tout H2O as this, like, paragon of, of feminism. But I think it did a better job of telling that kind of story than, than H4O, so to speak. And I think that H4O kind of had the, the onus was on this movie to tell that kind of story. I think it's more relevant now. I think if you're going to tell a story where a woman's prepared 40 years to finally kill this guy, then... Um, then you should empower her and she should make so many dumb decisions. I don't know. I, I would expect those dumb decisions from, from an unprepared Lori from 20 years before. I, I guess I should talk about Jamie Lee Curtis. I think that her performance was fine. I think that she's, it, there, there's really, my critiques of Lori have nothing to do with her actual portrayal of her. I wish that she was given 
much more emotionally informed material. I, I think the way that she's talked about Lori in these interviews and really this campaigning for the movie has been so much more emotionally informed and so much more of the story that I want to hear. And I think if she was given more content that addressed trauma and that addressed um, the, the, the experience that Lori was having as a woman and like as a human being beyond like the whole anything about gender just like really making her feel human I think if she was given that kind of material I think Jamie Lee Curtis could really have knocked it out of the park and she just wasn't given that chance and so that was really like a wasted wasted opportunity now obviously there's talks of a sequel already it's definitely going to happen this movie has already made a shit ton of money I have no idea where the sequel is going to go. I, I think that Jamie Lee Curtis has said that she would do a sequel. She would be involved if they wanted her. I'm sure they'll keep her. I imagine that Allison will become a focus. You know, I think that seeing the knife in her hand, I think there, there was a suggestion that the story is going to continue with her in some way. And so I guess I could kind of understand why she really didn't have a, a real conclusive action in this movie. But... I also feel like you can't rely on another movie unless you're making like a Lord of the Rings where it's like we know that the story continues in the next movie. Like that's just how this works or like the Hunger Games movies. Then I could understand a character. You kind of have to like accept that their story has more to tell than what we saw in this movie. But I don't think this movie was – it wasn't told – the story wasn't told that way in this movie. And so really what it comes across as is Allison was just kind of like a loose end that they then just had to kind of like shuffle into the house and, and give her a knife to stab Michael a few times and say, there, fine. See? See? She's a part of this. But like why did we spend so much time with her? You know, why did we spend so much time with her if – this really wasn't going to have much to do with her. And you can't say, well, it'll be, you'll see it in the sequel. It's like, well, then, no. I, that's, 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 a, that's an excuse. It was great to hear John Carpenter's score. The opening credits, it, it just was like a really exhilarating experience to be sitting there hearing this like amazing score in a, in a theater. There's the whole thing with like the pumpkin going from rotting to whole again and I know that's just basically the original title sequence backwards and the whole suggestion that like it's starting all over again. Like, eh, it's fine. It's a little on the nose. I think once it got to like then the movie opening in the asylum and like all of that, I was like, we are not in the world of Halloween. We are not in Haddonfield. We're not we're not having the experience I'm hoping to have. We're complicating things. I think ultimately what I have to say about Halloween beyond a lot of these other things, like my original critique before I really processed this movie is that there's like the situation is too complicated. What's so great about the original Halloween is that it's, it's simple in a way. Like what happens is very simple. And then for the sequel to be so complicated to have the podcasters, to then introduce Vicky to then, um, you know, have this whole stupid twist with the doctor. That was the greatest offense to not really knowing what to do with Allison, to having no idea what to do with Karen until the end, to not even really using Lori. You know, like, there were so many missteps that it was like, well, maybe you were just trying to juggle too much at once. And if you took some of these out, then we could just get a richer Lori story, a, a richer Karen story. And you can still have the kills and the fanboy, you know, moments and all of that. But 
Or don't. I don't know. I, I know every fan has their opinion of how a movie should be done, and I'm just one more voice. But I just think there was so much more potential with this movie, and it's really disappointing to see so much of it squandered. And so I love this Halloween for what it could have been, and I appreciate little elements of what it did do. But as they talked about on Gaylords of Darkness, take a drink. I am looking to Suspiria to be all of the brilliance of what I was hoping Halloween to have, especially when it comes to women. You know, it's directed by a queer man, so I feel good about that. It's full of women. It's got uh, Jessica Harper and Tilda Swinton, you know, so it's not just younger women. It's supposed to be incredible from what I've heard. I mean, Suspiria is a very hard movie to remake. The original is so specific. There's lots of interesting ties in a way because the original movie was essentially written by uh, Dario Nicolotti, who was, I think, I don't think they were married, but they were partners, Dario Argento and Dario Nicolotti. And she basically wrote the script. Suspiria is basically her story. And so she kind of really should be taking most of the credit for the concept of that movie. I mean, Dario Argento can certainly, his direction, his his eye for detail, all of that. I mean, using Goblin as, as the score. I mean, the original Suspiria score. That is, the balls to do a Suspiria remake knowing the score of the original Suspiria, it's incredible. And I've heard I'm mean, the new music, the new soundtrack is by Tom York. And so that's certainly hopeful that it's like it's not just some kind of generic horror movie music, that it'll be like a choice. And if it's the music that we're hearing in the trailer, it, it's it's cool. I mean, it's a little Inception-y, but most scores are now because of Inception. But, I mean, that's an episode I'd love to do is just talking about Goblin's music in different horror movies, especially Dario Argento's, because it is – it is movie soundtrack magic. It's just it's just incredible. Anyway, I am not talking about Halloween anymore. I am now talking about all sorts of other things. But I guess that, that does lead me to the final thing I want to say before I wrap this up is that obviously the Halloween season is over. And my original excuse for putting out an episode after Halloween about Halloween was, well, maybe we can just extend talking about scary movies longer than the Halloween season. You know, like... I've gotten so much feedback from you guys about talking about scary movies and you guys are really into it and are down to hear more about it. And I definitely want to, you know, mix things up and, and talk. I have a whole bunch of ideas. I have a whole bunch of, you know, I thoughts and, and a whole calendar of possibilities. I've got months of episodes planned, but I am here to listen to the people. I also love talking about horror movies. And so we're going to keep talking about them. I mean, I started talking about Poltergeist long before October. I think it was somewhere in September. It wasn't that long before. But we could talk about whatever we want, right? And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I I hear you, and I'm going to keep making episodes talking about horror movies, and hopefully the ones that are not about horror movies are also still interesting to you. I also am likely going to be bumping up my Cherishing Valerie continuing series on season two of the comeback uh, because I got lots of feedback on that as well. And I love doing it. Like, it was amazing. It was just like uh, getting to spend all that time with Valerie Cherish. Yeah, I, I'm i so keen to do season two. 
uh, season one, I mean, God, those I, the, cherishing Valerie was a lot of fun to do. It was a lot of work, and I did not expect it to be so serious and to be so sad. I got a lot of feedback of people who cried listening to those episodes, and I am, I mean, gooped, gagged, honored, all the words. I, that, that that could elicit that kind of response. I just didn't expect, I didn't know. I mean, I went in like, all right, well, let's just let's just see what comes out creating this thing. And then it just like went to this like sad place of me beating up a kid on the bus in eighth grade. I mean, Jesus cripes. But I mean, whatever. I think some people appreciated that and identified with that. So I'm not mocking any of that or myself, you know. I, I guess in some ways... I guess I just feel vulnerable about it because it was just like, oh man, is this like too heavy? Am I oversharing? But I I overshare so so much on All Right Mary that if you are a crossover, you already know a lot of things about me, I think. Um, maybe, I don't know. This is officially not about Halloween anymore. I totally want to hear your opinions on not just Halloween, um, but, you know, other things you want to hear me talk about, other horror movies you're interested in. You know, I... I definitely am on board to take your feedback. I also just like hearing from you guys. I love hearing your opinions. I love getting a long email. And so if you if you want to contribute, all you've got to do is drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Colin Drucker, and you can friend me there or follow me or whatever the terminology may be. And of course, if you guys are down, you know the request, you know it's coming, you listen to podcasts, it's to head over to iTunes and to leave a five-star rating if, if you feel that way, but hopefully you do. And a positive review, please, because negative reviews, they just sit there and haunt me the rest of my life. Um, that would be amazing. Uh, coming up next on In the Details, I have not figured it out, but I've got some ideas. I, I might keep it spooky. I might do something a little bit different. Um, so it's going to be a surprise. Thank you so much for coming on over to my little my little podcast over here and celebrating i guess we didn't really celebrate today i guess we kind of just talked shit about the new halloween movie but exploring all of the nuances about it that were satisfying or otherwise and questioning some of the acting choices trying to find some micro moments and mining for nuances in the details i'll talk to you next time bye